Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we'll be reading out of John chapter 7. Let me pray real quick and then we will read. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for today. I thank you we can gather together and unpack your word and, and its beauty and its magnificence. Lord, and I pray that it would give us life. Lord, I just pray uh, in lieu of recent events that we would remember uh, who, who we fight against. And Lord, I pray that we as Christians, that we would stand together as the family of God. And Lord, that we would be united in despite the differences we may have with one another. Lord, I pray for this morning that you would be glorified and worshipped and that we would have fellowship with one another. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we will read from John chapter 7, verses 25 through 39. But before we read, I would like to kind of place this passage within its context. So where are we in the story of the Gospel of John? The entire Gospel of John, from all of the stories, all of the words, all of the verses, all of the details point to one centralized purpose. And what is that that is found in John chapter 20, verse 31? It says this, But these things have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In John chapter 5, verses, John chapter 5 through John chapter 12, really centralizes and focuses on that Jesus is deity, that He is the Son of God. And where we were last week, in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, we saw the opposition begin to arise and to bubble up. First, we saw the first group that opposes Jesus is His brothers, and in a sense, they wish Him dead. It's kind of a rough sibling relationship there. Uh, but then we have the second group of opposition, which is the crowds, and they are just confused as to who Jesus truly is. And then that's where we really pick up today. What I want you to, as we read, I want you to see Jesus' reaction to the opposition that he faces, both between his brothers and the crowds, and notice how he responds. Verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple. Notice that he's in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, that I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him at that moment, and no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and were saying, When the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? Will he? Verse 32. But then the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement? He said, you will seek me and will not be able to find me, and where I am you cannot come. Now in the culmination of everything, verse 37. Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. Today I want us to see something a little bit different. Last week we saw two different characters on stage. We saw Jesus through their eyes, through the opposition that they gave to him, through the crowds, and through Jesus' brothers. But today I want to do something a little bit different. I want us to see the story in John 7 through the lens of Jesus' eyes. I want to see this story as he sees it. Because what I see in John chapter 7 is a beautiful display of grace. The question I'm trying to answer this morning is how does Jesus respond to opposition? For just a second, I want you to take a step back from your life. I want you to ascend to the mountaintop and take a view over the life that you have lived to this point. I want you to take a step back and see your life from a bird's eye perspective. Allow me to ask you a question. When was the time in your life that you received grace? When was the time in your life that you received unmerited favor? When was the time your parent caught you maybe red-handed and did not lay the boom? When was the time that your spouse found something that they did not care for and they forgave? When was the time that your boss found you slacking, and instead of firing you or condemning you or writing you up, he gave you a second chance. When was the time that you received grace in this life? Uh, I've admitted this many, many times, that I am uh, a vastly imperfect human being, and many of you know that. <laughs> so, uh, But uh, there's many, many times in my life that I have received grace from my spouse to my parents to the staff here to you all. Uh, but for whatever reason, when I went up on the mountain and saw my life from a bird's eye perspective, for whatever reason, there was one particular event that I remember that I received grace. It was my senior year of high school. Now, uh, I went to high school at Grissom. Any other Grissom grads in here? All right, represent. There we go. Okay. Uh, but I was not, if you knew me in high school, I was definitely not the best student, that is to say the least. You know, if I would have tried just this much, I probably would have made straight A's, but I was vastly proud of my straight C's, and I'm not kidding. Okay, it's bad. But I remember my senior year of high school, but not just my senior year of high school. I remember the last semester of high school, not just even my last semester, but I remember eight weeks to go before I graduated from Grissom High School. I remember doing a little calculation of my grades in trigonometry, and I calculated, with eight weeks to go, my senior year of high school, that I had a 24. Now, if you forgot what high school grades were, that's really bad, okay? Uh, you had to get at least a 65 in that day and age to actually graduate from high school, okay? So here I am, no one, you know, I never did my homework, I wasn't the particularly most kind student to my teacher, and uh, so I quickly did this calculation, and... I remember just feeling dead to rights, that I deserved at that particular moment to fail my class and to be 
the creepy old guy, the 19-year-old hanging out at Grissom High School the next year. And so I remember uh, going before my math teacher with my 24 in trigonometry, and I just basically pleaded and begged for mercy. Now here I am, this 18-year-old guy with eight weeks to go, and she was faced with the decision that she could have rightfully failed me, or she could have extended grace to somebody that did not deserve it. I remember, I believe her name was Miss Matthews. And I remember she faced this decision eight weeks ago, and, and she had the decision to make, so, okay, this guy is guilty as charged. He has done everything wrong. He has not studied. He's not done homework. He sleeps every day in my class. And I could justifiably fail him, or she could have extended grace. Well, the fact that I am here today probably tells you what she chose. I did graduate from high school, just in case you are curious. Uh, but then I remember that she chose to extend mercy grace to a young man that did not deserve it. I remember she added an additional test. She added quizzes to help bring my grade up by the end of the semester. This is a small, insignificant uh, small picture of the grace that God gives us. This is a small picture of the grace that God gives us, that because of our sin, because of the mistakes that we make, we are dead to rights. That we are eternally condemned before a perfect God because of our imperfections. And that essential component of the gospel, that we are sinners, is an absolutely critical pillar to understand because you're not going to understand grace and the gospel without first understanding that you and I are sinners, right? I mean, you, you have no reason to believe in Jesus if you think that you're a good enough person to get to heaven. But as I look at the scripture, as I look today in John chapter 7 and far beyond, I, I'm increasingly committed to the idea that you and I are vastly imperfect. Can I get an Amen. That you and I, when we stand before God, we are dead to rights. And without hope, without grace from God, we simply cannot make, make atonement. We cannot get to heaven. You and I are in desperate need of grace. And that is the grace that I see on full display here in John chapter 7. Through the lens of Jesus' glasses, so to speak. I know they didn't have those back then, but moving on. But through the eyes of Jesus... I want to see him extend grace to a crowd that has been ministered to for two and a half years. He has communicated love and affection and grace. He has communicated his identity, his intent, his gospel to this crowd that now are uprising against him. So that is the lens that I want you to see today. And Jesus' response is seen in three different ways in the three different scenes that we see in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 39. If you have your Bible, your hard copy version, you'll probably notice that John chapter 7, verses 25 through 39, that that section breaks down into three main scenes. You have scene number one is the first paragraph, which is in verses 25 through 31. You have scene number two in verses 32 through 36. And then you have a third scene, so to speak, in verses 37 through 39. But I want you to notice the grace of Jesus Christ extending to the crowds in the first scene. How does he do it? Verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Wait, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? That goes back to chapter 7, verse 1. 
Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple. Notice that a little bit. In the temple. What is he about to say? Teaching is saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and you sent me. He sent me, excuse me. Verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. Yet, they were confused and were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So if you have your notes, how does Jesus respond to the opposition? By extending grace, reminding them here of his identity. Reminding them of his identity and what are the two components of his identity found in scene number one? His identity as the Christ or Messiah and as the Son of God. But if you notice here, what's this, this, uh, this scene in verses 25 through 27 is all uh, messed up, all shook up, that the crowds don't really know how to handle this Jesus guy. And you notice there, confusion. confusion. All right? So what are they saying on one hand? That if, if the authorities don't think he's the Christ, then where are they to arrest him? But then they say kind of the opposite. Well, then maybe they know something that we don't, that this Jesus is truly the Christ. But then notice their justification for not believing in Jesus. Obviously some believe in him in verse 27 to 28, but some of them do not. So this, this whole story is really kind of confusing to kind of to figure out what's really happening. But then notice their justification for struggling if they would believe in him. Verse 27. However we know, however we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Wait a second. What do, what do we just get done talking about at Christmas time? What, what do we know to be true? That, that they're a little bit confused. That what's really going on here? Well, we can't really see in the first century that the, the Jewish culture communicates to the Jewish nation that the Messiah, they don't know where the Messiah is going to come from, but all of a sudden he will appear at the temple and proclaim himself to be the Christ or the Messiah. What's the problem with that? That they, they, they clearly have not read the Old Testament prophecies that tell where the Christ is from, right? So Micah 5, 2, what does that one say? That the Christ will be born in a little town called Bethlehem. And then also you have Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that says, out of, my, out of Egypt I have called my son, which you know Jesus came from Egypt because Joseph fled there to escape the decree of Herod. So the crowds are sitting there, they're all shook up. They're all confused because they think their tradition says, we don't know where the Messiah is from, but they clearly do not know the Old Testament as well as they probably think they do. But why? You know, why do the crowds, why do the Jews struggle so hard to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Why do they struggle so much to believe that Jesus is the anointed one that they have waited for since the Garden of Eden? Because to us, clearly, 2,000 years later, it's as plain as day. 
I believe there are three reasons why they cannot, they struggle to believe that Jesus is Messiah. Reason number one we found in John chapter 6 verse 44. What does that say? What does Jesus say? It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So one of the reasons why they can't get it is because of the Father's draw. But then reason number two is found in John chapter 7 verse 27. That, that they really think they know the Bible, they think they know the Old Testament prophecies, but they really don't have an idea. Because if they truly knew, then they would see Micah 5.2, Hosea 11.1, 1, and a vast variety of Jesus' prophecies that he fulfills. But then reason number three, that they simply cannot grasp the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is really, probably, is really because of culture. What I say is culture. Now, there are so many things that we, as uh, 21st century Americans living in 2021 now, just do not get. You know, we weren't first century Jews, so it's hard for us to understand what really blinds them to the truth. I mean, the, the separation of 2,000 years has caused us not to really understand their culture. Let me, let me go, with you on, go with me on this. Imagine with me. And that in 2,000 years from today, okay, or from 2020, so if someone, hopefully the Lord will come back before 4,020, amen, please rescue us from this. Okay, anyways, it's a disaster outside. Okay, so but ha- let's just say this. Let's say somebody in 4,020 picks up a history book and reads about the pandemic in 2020, okay? What are they, they're going to be a little bit confused, right? I mean, they're going to be wondering why we're wearing masks as we drive. Right? Okay? That's out there. They're going to be wondering why we uh, bought all the toilet paper when the pandemic hit. Okay? They're going to be wondering why we buy bread and milk, the most perishable items on earth. Okay? They're going to be sitting there really confused as to the culture that they see. It's the same with us. We, there's a huge disconnect between the first century Jews and us today. What we fail to understand is the culture that they live in. One of the reasons why they struggle to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is because of what they have seen to this point. I believe I shared this a couple of months ago, and and I'm kind of going off the top of my head here, so if I get this number wrong, then you'll have to forgive me. But a few months ago, I shared a stat that, that that the Jewish nation before Jesus, before Jesus even arrives on the scene, the Jewish nation has have heard 32 other people proclaim that they are the Messiah and the Christ. 32 people that have proclaimed themselves to be the Messiah, the Christ, and all 32 fell short. Let me ask you the question. If 32 different people promised to give you a million dollars, and all 32 of them failed to give them to you, what would happen if number 33 came along? You would be a little bit doubtful to the truth, right? That's what's going on here. The reason they cannot believe or they struggle to believe in the Messiah is because of the Father's straw, because they fail to understand the Old Testament prophecies, and because they've been let down by people in the past. Other 32 Messiahs that have proclaimed Jesus Christ, or to be the Christ. But in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of all this unbelief and confusion, despite Jesus proving himself to truly be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, he's proven it by taking a happy meal and feeding 20,000 people. He's proven it by healing others. He's proven it by discourse. He's proven it in so many different ways. But still, he extends grace. Notice verse 28 with me. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, Teaching and saying, you both know me and where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, 
whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me, so that they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. How does Jesus react to the opposition that he faces? He extends grace by reminding them again and again and again of his identity as Messiah and Son of God. We also fail to understand oftentimes that Jesus has been ministering to these people for two and a half years. And they still don't get it. Now, I am obviously not Jesus, and that is a good thing because I could not atone for sin because I'm vastly imperfect. Um, But if I was Jesus here in verses 28 through 30, what would I do? I would totally walk away from this discussion altogether, and I would probably start zapping people for them questioning who he is. But then notice the logic here in verse 28. What does Jesus say in verse 28 of John chapter 7? He says this. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. So what is his identity? Since the Father is true, and since the Father sent him, therefore Jesus is true. That's the logic of verse 28. Since the Father is true, and since the Father sent Jesus, therefore Jesus is true. He has shown that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the spotless Lamb of God, and Jesus is our pathway to eternal life. And instead of chastising them, Instead of demoralizing them, instead of shaming them, he proclaims himself once again to be the Christ. I think sometimes in life we like to disconnect from Bible stories, feeling we don't have anything in common with them, but I would beg to differ. That oftentimes we fail to remember who Jesus Christ truly is, and we fail to remember the grace that Jesus extends to us, not only to save us, but to also sanctify us every day. But then notice the second scene here, verse 32. Notice as the story and the scene begins to build around the temple, as they are there, the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Man, uh, therefore Jesus said to them, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me. And when I find me, and where I am, you cannot come. But then the Jews confused, said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? How does Jesus respond to opposition by extending grace, reminding them of his intention, his intention to obey the Father fully and to return to the Father or return to heaven? What's going on here? So Jesus is in the temple, the most holy place on earth, and he is proclaiming himself to be of the Father, to be of the same. And then what are the, how do the Pharisees react? They send temple guards, that word officers there is probably temple guards. They send temple guards to arrest Jesus. Now, if I had just got done telling the truth, and if I was, had all power, 
I wouldn't probably not handle this well if I was Jesus, but instead of zapping people once again, what does he do? He reminds them of his intention. And what is Jesus' intention for his whole ministry? It is to obey the Father fully. Because the Father, since the Father is true, and since the Father sent him, therefore Jesus is true, and therefore Jesus will fulfill all that the Father requires. That Jesus' time is not yet fulfilled, that he has six more months of ministry, and then he will return to the Father in heaven. But then notice their reaction once again. They are all messed up. Verse 35, then the Jews, then confused, said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is, it, what is their reaction? Instead of, instead of uh, seizing the day, so to speak, instead of believing in Jesus, some of them do, but instead of these people believing in Him, following Him, they instead wonder where Jesus is going to disappear to. What do they think He might be disappearing to? He may be going to the dispersion of the Greeks in verse 35 and 36. Now, a staff person in Tuesday of this week asked me the question, which is a great question. He said that, what is the dispersion? What, is, what does he mean by that? The dispersion that the Jews are here inquiring about are best seen in James chapter 1, verse 1. The dispersion that they're referring to are the ethnic Jews that are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So what are they at? What are they saying? So Jesus is going to leave Jerusalem, but where is he going to go? Is he going to go to the ethnic Jews that live throughout the Roman Empire and teach them and teach the Greeks as well? But Jesus has no business and has no desire to go there because the Father has not commanded him to do so. Jesus' mission is to obey the Father and to return to him after his mission is complete. And to display in John chapter 7 the grace that these people seem to ignore and seem not to want and heed. So we see scene number one and scene number two. We see the chaos and confusion that the Pharisees are trying to arrest them. Some of the Jews are trying to arrest them. Some people believing in him. They're all confused. Where's Jesus going to go and who he is? There's just this massive, uh, we would say, a beehive that's just erupting at this moment. And if I were Jesus seeing the lens of this culture in this time, I would not share what he's about to share in verses 37 through 39. I would just wipe my hands clean and be done with it all. But instead of being sick and tired, of being sick and tired, despite his two and a half years of pouring his life, despite their doubts, despite the fact that they want to arrest him and kill him, Jesus extends grace and he displays it in his invitation. Notice verses 37 through 39. They're beautiful. Notice. Now on the last day of the feast, the Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Does that sound familiar? But this he spoke of the Spirit. Notice that. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. How does Jesus respond to the opposition by extending grace through communicating his identity, his intention, and through his invitation. 
And what is his invitation here in verses 37 through 39? What's, what's he inviting them to? Eternal life. The most precious gift that he could possibly give. He is communicating to these people who want nothing to do with it, his grace and his love and his gospel. And not only that, we have this false idea that the gospel is just something that we believe in that doesn't really do anything to my life, that just makes sure that I'm not end up in hell, but I end up in heaven. But Jesus says that if you would just believe in me, that rivers of life would come out of your dry and weary soul. I find that incredible that Jesus would extend the grace of the gospel and his promises that it gives to the people that do not want it. But I want you to notice three details of this invitation, verses 37 through 39. I want you to notice detail number one, where is Jesus? Earlier in the passage, he's at the temple, but maybe the better question here is, when is Jesus? When does Jesus actually give this proclamation? Verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, what I talked a little bit about that last week. The feast here that he's referring to is the Feast of Booths, which commemorates Jesus's forty, Jesus's Israel's forty years in the desert, and the feast here is one of three annual feasts that the Jew that the Jews recognize. Feast number one is the Passover. Feast number two is the Feast of Pentecost. And feast number three here is the Feast of Booths. And all of these people from all around the nation go to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So at the end of the feast, at the great day, which is the seventh day of the Feast of Booze, that day is the culmination of the feast itself. Jesus stands up and proclaims that he is the provider of eternal life, and the Spirit is the river of living water. But the question I have is why? Why does Jesus, on the seventh day, why does he do it right here, explain the invitation of eternal life? It could be for two different reasons. Number one, it could be to reach the optimal amount of people. To think about the Feast of Booths, all of the people from all around the nation of Israel are migrating to Jerusalem, and Jesus is in Jerusalem at a day where everybody would be in Jerusalem itself, and he is proclaiming eternal life to all. But Jesus could we also be sharing... The rivers of eternal life, which is found through the gospel and the effect of the Spirit, he could be sharing this for a completely theological reason as well. If you think about the New Testament, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John and the book of Acts, what happens at the feasts? What happens at the Feast of Passover? Jesus dies. What happens at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? The Spirit comes. And here at the Feast of Booths, what is Jesus doing? The Feast of Booths commemorates Israel's 40 years in the desert, but I think it's something else a little bit more additionally. Where was God in the midst of the 40 years of the wilderness? He was there amongst them. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Perhaps Jesus is communicating to them on the great day of the feast that he is God with them. That he has come, that he's come to give eternal life to all, that he is the culmination of every feast that they celebrate. 
Then notice the second detail in verses 37 through 39. Notice what it says in verse 37. It says, if anyone is thirsty, I love that metaphor. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What do we know that phrase to be from Acts, from John chapter 6, verse 35? What do we know that phrase to be? That, that, is, that is a presentation of the gospel. That in order to truly believe what must happen, that we must realize that we are spiritually thirsty. Because why, why would you submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior if you think that you got it all together? If you do not realize your spiritual thirst that you have, that there's a God-shaped hole in your heart and in your soul that only God is meant to fill, if you do not realize that, if you do not want to come to Him realizing you're thirsty and hungry for something more than the world can offer you, then why would you ever believe in Him? Friends, listen to me. That even we as non-believers, so we as Christians, sometimes we feel thirsty and hungry spiritually and even we as Christians, we can go into the world and try to find all of the things besides God to fill that need. We can find things like work and drugs and money and greed. But as I see here, as I can say it this way, that Jesus is the only Gatorade of your soul. He's the only thing that can satisfy your inner recesses, the innermost part of your being, which is said of the Spirit then nothing in this life satisfies. And Jesus, notice, Jesus satisfies so much that the gospel that from Him rivers, notice that it's not a creek, it's not a trickle of water, but rivers of life will come out of you. That from an oasis of desert and dryness of our spiritual life comes rivers of life flowing to eternal Life. This is not in my script. But perhaps in a rabbit trail, let me ask you the question. You're sitting here this morning, I would imagine most of us here in this room have experienced the rivers of life that the Spirit of God and the Gospel provides. But what is what are some of the things in the world that you seek to satisfy the thirst that you have today still? Perhaps we will find more contentment in finding the, the soul-quenching ability of the gospel, even in the Christian life itself. What are some of the things that you seek to quench your soul that only God is meant to? And then notice the third detail there as well in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Where future, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is he referring to? That they will experience the Spirit of God and the permanent indwelling of Him at Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost. But what I find amazing about this whole story, through seeing it through the lens of Jesus, is that these people have been walking with Jesus in the crowds for two and a half years, and Jesus has been banging his head against the wall for that long. He has six months left to go before he's crucified on the cross, and Jesus could have just found a cave somewhere to hide out for the last six months before he's crucified on the cross, but instead he has patience with these people to remind him of his identity, of his intention, and of his invitation to eternal life. That in the midst of their doubts, 
in the midst of their death threats of Jesus, in the midst of their rejection of the gospel, he is patient and extends to them unmerited favor. I believe the same is true for us. That the grace that Jesus extends to them, patience in the midst of their sin, grace in the midst of their mistakes, love in the midst of their opposition, mercy in the midst of their angst, that the same grace and mercy that Jesus extends to them, he extends to us today. My point today is quite simple. is the same grace that Jesus extends to them, he extends to us. The same grace he extends to them, he extends to us. Let us not Let us not pretend. Let us not put on a wall of perfection that nothing is ever wrong in our lives. Let us not put on a face mask to show the world that we never struggle with doubt or sin or temptation or with confusion or with struggle. That I believe in the midst of our constant doubts, even as Christians, that as God extends his grace, that if we constantly struggle to our doubts as to God's goodness, to his power, to his purposes and trials, God extends unmerited favor in the midst of our constant confusion. That sometimes in life, this world makes no sense, especially coming out of 2020 and into 2021, that we just stare at the world and we just wonder what the Lord is doing. And many of us just doubt the goodness and mercy and sovereignty of the Lord. But even in those times, he still extends grace. That in the midst of our struggle to obey the word of God, to trust him, to believe in his word, to obey him, he still extends grace grace to us that Jesus we are the crowds can I just say this we are the crowds in our Christian life Oftentimes we stare at his, his, his message and his Bible and we are all confused as to what's really going on. And sometimes we forget who Jesus is and his intention in this world. And we forget the rivers of life that should flow out of us, rushing to eternal life. And we get so focused on every, all the other things, but still there. He extends to us grace and mercy. Friends, Jesus is patient with us. He loves us. He reminds us of his plan, and he extends to us his spirit to give us life. My application today is on the back of your sheet, if you have one. And it's a fill in the blank. It's this, in the midst of blank, God gives grace. In the midst of blank, God gives grace. And that is my application. I would imagine each of us in this room have areas that the enemy is shaming us, wrapping us in sin and shame, tempting us. And each of us here today have struggles in our life. And what I want you to do is I just want you to this week kind of take a walk, pray, read the scripture, and just examine your own personal life as to the shame that you live under. And I want you to put that in that blank, that in the midst of blank, that God extends grace and forgiveness to me. Because, friends, I don't want us 
to be wrapped in shame. I want us to be wrapped in the grace of God. I want us to not meditate on our failures, but on his victory. I want us not to hold bitterness towards others or to, towards ourselves, but forgive because we are forgiven. I do not want us to be crippled by our culture or by our shortcomings or by our failures, to understand what you see in John chapter 7. But I want us to see ourselves through the lens of Jesus Christ, through blood-stained glasses, that our sins are paid for, that we no longer have to live under the shame of sin and grief. But now, because of the blood of Christ, we have rivers of life that flow out of us, that no longer do we have to live according to the world's standards, but now we have grace and love and mercy that was bought for on the cross and that is freely given to us all. I want us to be people that choose to identify with the grace of Christ and not with the shame of sin. The same grace Jesus has given to them, he gives to me grace enough to forgive, to be patient, to be kind, to be merciful. The same grace to reveal his intentions to us over and over again. The same grace to extend the invitation and to remind us of the rivers of life that the Spirit has given to us in a desert of sin and darkness. But this morning, I know that some of us here today, I know some of us have the gospel wrapped around in our heart, that we know this to be true, that we understand what it means to be saved by grace through faith. But, uh, you know, this morning, I, I believe that some of you here today are the crowds, but not, and re, not spiritually regenerated. That even some of you tuning in online, if you are watching this in the year of 4020, you will not understand half of probably what I'm saying. But whenever you view this video, if you have never accepted Christ Jesus, what is it? What's the condition of your soul? That you are dry and weary in desperate need of the gospel and rejuvenation that only Christ can give. Until you see your sin, until you see your need for grace, the gospel of Jesus and the Bible really will not make any sense. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then come to him, those who are thirsty, and believe in him, and you will have eternal life and abundant life. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I, I, I'm not sure that... Uh, I can really understand your grace and I did your perspective justice because, Lord, I think sometimes we disconnect from stories or we identify with the bad guy or the one that made the mistakes. But, Lord, this morning, I hope that we just saw the world through your lens and through your eyes, that here are people that need you, that need to understand and believe in Jesus, and you have been patient with them over and over and over again, and still they reject you, and even here they try to seize you and kill you. And Lord, I just, uh, I just pray that we would not be the crowds, Lord, that we would believe in you. But Lord, if we are the crowds, whether we are Christians or not Christians, that we would surrender to you, that we would understand and believe and trust in you, that we would look at our lives and the sin that we have, and that we would come to the throne of grace to ask for forgiveness. For Lord, we know that you are a merciful and great God, slow to compassion, or slow to anger, abounding in compassion and loving kindness. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you 
for your word and its magnificence. And Lord, I just thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.